Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Monday, April 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I like to start the show today with a random Michael Cohen observation. The guy looks just enough like Henry Winkler that I can't hate him. All right, that's our Michael Cohen coverage. Now moving on to Donald Trump. And here's the truth about this guy. He just doesn't want to do that much doesn't want to put in the effort. He likes a reaction. He likes for his base to like him, which is a tautology. I suppose he would like the base liking him to somehow translate into another election victory. Of course, that would mean that he'd have to do stuff, but it's validating. Of course, it also leads to his practical concern, which is personal enrichment, but he's just not that ambitious, especially when things are hard in the international arena. He doesn't care to solve Syria. I mean, literally, he doesn't care enough to even care to solve Syria. The guy has three slogans when it came to Syria. One, you got to say Islamic terrorism, saying it helps. Two, got to be strong, not weak. Can't be weak. Strength, good. Weakness, not good. Three, never, ever give him a withdrawal date. You can withdraw, just don't give him a date. So when Bashar al-Assad tested his resolve policy slogans, when when he tested his slogans a year ago, Trump, at the time of that chemical bombing, came up with some slightly different words. When you kill innocent children, innocent babies, babies, little babies, with a chemical gas that is so lethal People were shocked to hear what gas it was. And that gas was sarin, in case you were wondering. So the U.S. looked tough, and they bombed them. 59 Tomahawk missiles. The U.S. rained hell from the sky. Of course, when hell is raining, you could always go inside and just wait it out, which the Syrians did. So the U.S. pockmarked some Syrian airstrips. But that showed them, that cowed them to such an extent that the Assad regime did not use sarin gas until they wanted to, which was a couple days ago. Maybe next time, the U.S. will put even bigger craters. So maybe the response will be even more massive this time, and the U.S. will put even bigger craters into an even more expansive swath of Syrian asphalt. And then, when that happens, I'm sure Assad will refrain from attacking until, you know, until he really feels like it. But here's the thing. I I don't want more than this. I don't want more than lobbing a couple missiles. I don't want boots on the ground. I don't think much can change. Obama clearly didn't want to do more than this. In one of the weirdest episodes of his presidency, he deferred to Congress on the issue of Syrian strikes because democracy, even though he authorized tons of zone strikes in Yemen and Pakistan without a new war authorization, and by the way, I'm I'm in favor of those, but I just think he was using due process as a high-minded way to not do much. And polls show that 70% of the American public agreed with him at the time. Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate were dead set against his proposal to do something, and that proposal never even came to a vote. Now, Trump, he is not one for the niceties of empty actions. He is for bold, unilateral empty actions. And Trump is using bomb the shit out of them as a way to not really do much either. By the way, can you really bomb the shit out of a country if all you're doing is attacking the runways? Do runways have a digestive tract? We bombed their shit. We just didn't bomb them. In so many arenas, Trump has the potential to totally upend the international order. 
did a little with the Paris Accords, but in general, it's hard and it has consequences. So when you really look at it, he hasn't taken a much different stance in terms of the substance of the policy than Obama did in Syria, in Afghanistan, even in North Korea. You know, all the places without easy solutions. Sure, he's going to have a summit with Kim Jong-un. Again, this will be about talking. We'll see how different the policy will be. In the spiel, I talk about uh, the Trump economic team, good on TV versus bad on TV. But first, Mark Zuckerberg is set to testify before Congress tomorrow. And we have the preview, which Zuckerberg shall we see, tie or hoodie? April Glazer. Slate Technology Writer is here. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tomorrow, Mark Zuckerberg will be testifying before the Senate. It's one of two appointments with Congress for the leader of Facebook. Will he give them the minimum amount of his attention? Will he give them part of his attention? He probably should give them all of his attention. He's been paying attention to the criticism that Facebook has come under, what with Russian trolling and Cambridge Analytica. Joining me now to talk about what Zuckerberg is going to be asked and how he should answer is April Glazer. She is the co-host of the If Then podcast and is a tech columnist for Slate. I know that. Hello, April. How are you? I am busy, but good. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. So in the last week or so, we've seen a lot more of Zuckerberg and a lot more of Zuckerberg in a somewhat confrontational setting, being interviewed by people where he didn't control all the means of the interview. What did you learn about Zuckerberg or his strategy in the last week or so? 
Well, in terms of strategy, I think they're trying to drown the news cycle and get ahead of these hearings that are happening this week as much as possible. I mean, he gave an interview to Wired, to Recode, to Vox, to The Atlantic, to CNN, to The New York Times, you know, and Sheryl Sandberg also went on an apology tour. And it seems to be that they're trying to get the news out. So that way, when Zuckerberg does go to testify, he can say, look, we're we're doing as much as we can now, as I already said, and and trying to make this as much of a non-news moment at the hearing as possible which is going to be quite difficult because there's no central piece of legislation these hearings are circulating around. Um, and so I expect Congress members to sensationalize this as much as possible. Oh, so difficult for him, the fact that there's, I mean, there is an Honest Ads Act and there are a couple of ideas, but there's nothing specific. So you think that that will mean that the opportunity will just be to uh, beat Zuckerberg about the head? I think he's going to be ripe for grilling. I mean, you, you did mention the Honest Ads Act. That's the uh, the bill that is co-sponsored by Senator Klobuchar, Senator Warner, and on the Republican side by John McCain that would regulate ads over uh, internet platforms, in the political ads in particular, uh, in the same way that they're regulated over television and uh, and broadcast and print and such, such that they have to include a disclaimer about who paid for the ad. But that's really just a drip, like a drop in the bucket uh, over, you know, the types of of regulation that could be leveraged on Zuckerberg's company. And it seems that there is support mounting for that. Zuckerberg came out, or rather Facebook came out in support of the Honest Ads Act last week. But, you know, right after Cambridge Analytica, Mark Zuckerberg also said he doesn't expect it to pass. There's not like a serious piece of, you know, digital privacy legislation on the table or legislation that would like regulate or change the way Facebook operates. Facebook has already said that it plans to add disclaimers anyway with or without, you know, regulation requiring them to over political ads. Yeah, so political ads on Facebook aren't that big, that large a portion of their revenue. I mean, Facebook is so huge, I guess no no one thing is. But political ads that would be affected by the Honest Ads Act, you could see why Zuckerberg is willing to write that away. Sure, we won't have any foreign actors advertised without people knowing it on Facebook. If that's the price of buying off this attention. Or... Can he look at that and think that that might lead to something that really does strike at a more sizable portion of his bottom line? I don't think he sees this as something that's going to threaten his bottom line, and that's why it's very easy for them to support it. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to, to put a little bit of text at the bottom of an ad that says who pays for it, especially because who says, you know, who pays for these ads are, you know, political action committees that are named like Americans for American Prosperity or something like that, and it doesn't really tell a lot anyway. Um, but, but what would really hit Mark Zuckerberg's bottom line is comprehensive privacy legislation that limits the amount of data they collect and the way they collect data or how long his company is allowed to hold on to that data. And we don't have a proposal on the shelf yet that Congress can pull off and and throw their support behind. Right. So what I see is most of the members of the Senate, and then we'll get congressmen in in a day, saying, I can't believe how you opened up your platform to Russian trolls. And Zuckerberg will say, as Sandberg has said, yes, that was wrong. We apologize for that. Or Cambridge Analytica and Zuckerberg will say, our rules now do not prevent that. And we're doing everything we can so that that sort of thing doesn't happen again. It's kind of limited. Zuckerberg will say, you're absolutely right about those specific things. 
I wonder, though, will any senator say, but let's talk about the bigger picture. Maybe why do you get to keep our data? Or I'm very concerned with privacy and your business model in general. I'm not even sure what the politics of that are. I don't, I'm not sure if a Democrat or Republican would be most willing to, or able or eager to say that. But what do you think are the chances that those arguments will get advanced forcefully and put Zuckerberg on the back foot? Interestingly, this is not a very partisan debate, right? We have Republicans and Democrats both saying that they would like to see some sort of regulatory action or some sort of laws uh, passed to kind of rein Facebook in, which is one of the most valuable companies in the world in terms of market capitalization. But what you're saying is that what Congress members really need to ask is for Mark Zuckerberg to justify why do you need to hold on to this data for so long, right? If you're going to be uh, sending me targeted ads for pizza when I'm hungry, do you really need to know my relationship status from 15 years ago, right? Like, do you really need to keep all this information on people in order to advertise to them now, right? Do you do you need to share with so many other entities and have these kind of porous data sharing policies that we saw exploited in the Cambridge Analytica case in order to remain as profitable as you are to keep your business model going? And what I really hope is that Congress members ask Zuckerberg to account, you know, why do we, why shouldn't we regulate you? You know, give us a good argument not to, because I can't really think of one. (laughs) See, but the thing is, and this is what I'm wondering, when Jacques Nasser comes before the Senate and he had a bunch of uh, tires that were exploding, when the cigarette CEOs come before the Senate, it's clear what the lines are. You've done something that harms America. We perform this ritual where maybe we pass real laws, but we definitely get mad at you. With Zuckerberg, is that, I mean, is that really certainly the dynamic there? I would think that a lot of senators appreciate his contribution to the economy or are a little scared of his power or have taken tons of donations, you know, on the Democratic side from him. I think it's a little muddier than usual. It is. And there's definitely, though, I will say kind of an ambient anger towards Facebook just for distracting us and wasting so much of our time over the years and and just kind of, you know, completely messing up our politics, perhaps, in the run-up to the to the 2016 election. But he's not considered as villainous as we would say, like, an oil company executive mm-hmm. is, right, or a big bank. But as scandal after scandal hits the company, people are definitely going to be looking to their Congress members, to their elected officials, to do something to, to kind of rein this company in, because, you know, clearly... Facebook has messed up our electoral process in some way, whether it be through the spread of fake news or letting, you know, foreign agents set up fake advocacy organizations on the platform and manipulate Americans or whether it's just, you know, allowing data to be harvested, our deeply personal data, free range and uh, and, and go to any random developer that, that wants to take it. Yeah, he's being briefed. He's being uh, advised by top people. And I don't know if he'll play this card in the hearings, but we'll probably hear about it if certain senators start to criticize him. Tom Tillis is on this committee. I didn't look up all of them. But Tom Tillis and his campaign ran ads... John Bolton Super PAC ads, Cambridge Analytica ads. And depending on if you were an optimistic person, you saw one Tom Tillis ad. And if you were not, you saw a different Tom Tillis ad. And we don't even know how many of these senators themselves have run campaign that used not illegal and in the world of political campaigning, probably not even unethical techniques like uh, a dark web ad that would target certain viewers, certain visitors to a web page where all the other visitors wouldn't get it. I am willing to bet that a lot of these 
A lot of these senators themselves have used this sort of technology. Might that come into play at the hearing or afterward? I do think so. I think that the dependence uh, of, you know, all elections and all campaigns that they have on data-driven targeted advertising does make Facebook kind of a difficult company to regulate. It gets, as I've argued before, in a similar cycle as campaign finance reform, where you kind of depend on, on these mechanisms in order to get elected. But I did speak to a Republican Congress member this morning who told me that, that actually Facebook has been very difficult uh, for elections as well, because it allows for up starts or people who disagree with the congressperson or the senator to get viral content out there against them, too. So, you know, I think that members of Congress certainly see Facebook as a battlefield that has both helped them and and made their lives more difficult than it used to be when they were just advertising on television and in print and on the radio. So lastly, April, I have I've imbibed more Zuckerberg, actual Zuckerberg, not Jesse Eisenberg Zuckerberg, than I ever have before this week. <laughs> and I came away with a few impressions. My impression of Zuckerberg beforehand was in his public presentations, he seemed remarkably naive for a man his age, but maybe this is how he's positioning the network. All we're doing is bringing people together. I mean, it's like a little Doug Henning-esque. Then there is the Zuckerberg that was lampooned on Saturday Night Live on Saturday as a guy who doesn't connect and relies on some sort of, uh, you know, nerdy, almost on the spectrum type communication style. I don't really see that. Maybe that's an easy joke. Then I was listening to him being interviewed by Ezra on the Vox podcast, Ezra, Ezra Klein, and he just came off as a guy who really knows his business, who was talking to Ezra in a language that Ezra could understand with answers that I could poke holes in, but it seemed like a fairly smart business executive talking like a fairly smart business executive where you don't shake your head and say, this guy doesn't get it. How do you think he's going to come off? Which Zuckerberg will we say? I think we're going to see him as a smart business executive, but one that has been very, very well trained to bob and weave out of questions, right? I think that it's really going to be on Congress to phrase these questions and to to position themselves in such a way that he has to respond in ways that don't make his company look good, right? Because clearly they've made a lot of mistakes and they haven't probably admitted to all of them yet. And stuff stuff could come out of this hearing that could, you know, spar or spur rather regulation in the future. And, uh, and he's going to be very, very skillful at, at, at getting out of those. I don't think he's as naive as uh, people like to think he is or, or as green at, at talking to the public as people think he is. He is a very, very rich man and the head of a very, very large company. And, uh, I think he's going to skillfully, uh, you know, dodge being accountable here as much as he can. Yeah. And my very last prediction is one or several senators will embarrass themselves probably with the, I don't know anything about technology. Lindsey Graham, who's on this committee, literally has bragged that he's never sent an email. We're going to get some of this. Look, I'm a grandpa. My grandkids tell me blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and that's the case. But the other thing to remember is that uh, what they're saying is reflective of U.S. technology policy in general. We have not had a comprehensive digital privacy law in the United States for almost 30 years, right? Actually, for over 30 years now. And, you know, it's it's really time for the U.S. to buckle down and, and think about what types of regulations need to be imposed on these companies that have grown so big and so powerful and have done so without any regulation over them. And so, you know, if Congress is saying that, they're really reflecting the state of U.S. law now, and hopefully other members of Congress will step up and say, well, that's not acceptable. 
April Glazer covers tech for Slate, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with. And she also co-hosts the podcast If Then with Will Remus. They talk about tech. Uh, it posts Wednesday most of the time, but tomorrow morning they will have a special episode all about Mark Zuckerberg's hearing with Congress. Thank you, April. Thanks. And now the spiel. Lawrence Kudlow. Think a Gordon Gecko type, or at least wannabe, with darkened hair and quite a gut. He was derided for appealing to the Trump Human Resources Department due to one fact. He was on TV. This was the knock against Kudlow. Oh, Trump just likes that guy and wants to hire him because he was on TV. But right now, let's take a moment and think. Let's get a mental picture of what the Trump Human Recesses Department looks like. You got a very cobweb desk. You've got the remnants of a Trump Tower taco salad. Maybe a desk calendar with uh, Tiffany's birthday, question mark, scribbled on a few dates in October. Okay, so Kudlow. He's a lightweight. He's a he's a just a TV performer. But the thing is, the other guys trying to explain Trump's policies, they're not TV performers. And when you have the performer in place, it's kind of nice, especially when you're watching TV. Kudlow was on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, and Wallace asked him flat out, "Are we going to have a going to have a trade war with China?" Is the president you say is calling him on? Is he bluffing? Or will he impose tariffs if China doesn't change its trade practices? Well, look, I, I, he's not bluffing. I mean, there are a number of tools at his disposal. And that is what you say whenever anyone asks you, are you bluffing in any circumstance? The right answer is always no. Because if you are bluffing, you would say no. And if you aren't bluffing, you would say no. And even if you had no idea about bluffing and someone says, are you bluffing? You just say no. You give yourself the out. Maybe I want to bluff in the future. They shouldn't even know when I'm bluffing. I mean, how great is that? You weren't bluffing. Someone asks if you're bluffing. You say no. Maybe next time they won't be able to get a read on your bluffing. Okay? So you get it. You get the tactic. Someone asks if you're bluffing. There's no reason to ever say, yes, I'm bluffing. We're all bluffing. Don't even say, well, we may be bluffing. It's kind of a half bluff. Half bluff, half not bluff. Now, with that in mind... And let's also remember that one other way to say bluffing is negotiating tactic. Listen to this question that Chuck Todd asked White House Chief Trade Advisor Peter Navarro on Meet the Press. It seems as if the administration wants to have it both ways, telling the Chinese we're serious about tariffs. These are coming. Here's the list. But then telling the public, no, 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 no. It's a negotiating ploy. It's a negotiating tactic. Which is it? It's uh, it's both, uh, Mr. Todd. No, no, it can't be both. It can't be both serious and a ploy. Because serious means you mean it, but ploy means, quote, something that is done or said, often dishonestly, in order to get an advantage, comma, a trick. Because of the way words work, a thing can't be both serious and a ploy. If it's any part ploy, it stops being serious. But then, a little later in the interview, this happened. How do you expect the Chinese to take the tariff threat seriously if you're publicly saying it's a negotiating tactic and that, you know what, we're not serious about it, 
uh, per se, we want to talk, but you haven't also really made it clear, what specific action do you want from the Chinese to prevent these tariffs from being implemented? I don't believe if you played back uh, what I said uh, just a minute ago, uh, that I said it was a negotiating tactic, it's not. All right, I'm going to help you out in case you're confused. I'm going to play both of the things that Peter Navarro said within a minute of each other, and I'm going to cut out some of the verbiage in between. Here we go. I don't believe if you played back uh, what I said uh, just a minute ago, uh, that I said it was a negotiating tactic. It's not. Telling the public, no, 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 no. It's a negotiating ploy. It's a negotiating tactic. Which is it? It's, uh, it's both, uh, Mr. Todd. All right, and that was just in case I was going insane. So that, what we just saw and heard out of Peter Navarro, that is called bad on TV. And bad on TV is bad, especially when you're watching TV. Sometimes bad on TV is because you're bad off TV also. That's something to think about. It's not true that Lawrence Kudlow's great off TV or has stellar ideas when not on TV, but when on TV, he's fine. He's a seemingly normal human being. Here he was once again. So Chris Wallace plays a clip of him from a few weeks ago, and it's that embarrassing thing where the archives contradicts a talking point that you're trotting out in the service of your current job. Here is what you said just last month when President Trump announced his first round of tariffs. And this wasn't an announcement. This was real imposition of tariffs on aluminum and steel. Here you are. Tariff hikes are prosperity killers. They always have been and they always will be. Tariffs are taxes and the ones who suffer most are the users. So who should we believe? That Larry Kudlow or this one? <laughs> I, I thought you might run that. Um, I'm opposed to blanket tariffs. And that's what first started. <laughs> Let's see what you did there, old friend. I get the rules of the engagement. Again, that's called good on TV. Here now is Peter Navarro on Meet the Press when asked to react to a piece of outside information that contradicts current talking points. Washington Post story over the weekend says this. Kelly has threatened to resign on multiple occasions. It's sort of a weekly event, one senior White House official quipped, though officials explained his declarations as expressions of momentary frustration. And when you read stuff in the Washington Post, frankly, uh, that's fake news most of the time. Yay. So that's your game. Can we at least get Good on TV guy back? I like Good on TV. I happen to be watching TV at the time. I wanted to watch something good. It's a lot better than something bad. I mean, I know we're not going to get good on trade policy or good on honesty or good on presidenting. At this point, Good on TV is just about all we have. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname produces the gist. He would think a bit more harshly of John Dowd if he didn't have a bit of the Tom Bosley about him. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, she's not too down on Ty Cobb. I mean, here's a guy who looks like he's going to pour you a phosphate while wearing arm garters, but who sounds like he's coming in spikes high to break up the double play. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. And... He retains a special place in his heart for Donald Trump Jr. attorney Alan Futterfass because he played the Futterfass in elementary school and he still remembers how to finger hot cross buns. The gist, we're still rooting for Jay Sekulow because he's kind of like the blue-haired lawyer on The Simpsons who says things like, Well, Your Honor, the court carries it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the Jews for Jesus version of that guy. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.